Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. There's been a significant shift in recent years in the understanding and acceptance of neurodivergent individuals' experiences. Yet assumptions and tremendous stigmas remain even among well-intentioned people. One thing is certain. As we learn more about the human mind and discuss our inner lives, a person who's perfectly rational all the time no longer seems to be the standard by which everyone should be measured. Over the course of her career, anthropologist T.M. Lerman has spent time among people who hear voices other than the one responsible for their interior monologues. Whether they were evangelicals discerning the voice of God, or an individual with schizophrenia hearing a discordant chorus, the ways in which they interacted with those voices and their potential to influence behavior remained very similar. In her article for the March 2022 issue, Lerman writes about her research on elite athletes who hear their coaches' voices guiding them while competing and those who continue to hear their coaches years later. I spoke with Lerman about her newest findings and how, if we openly acknowledge that an array of voices are part of our mental landscape, we might come closer to understanding so-called problems of the mind. I wanted to start off by asking about a previous article you wrote for Harper's for the June 2018 issue, which explored research suggesting that listening and responding to inner voices, rather than shutting them out, might profoundly improve the lives of people suffering from schizophrenia or just people who hear voices. If you could encapsulate it, what do you, what do you find most fascinating about inner speech? And do you remember when you were first became intrigued by it? What a great question. I think I have always been aware of my own inner world as full of jostling people and ideas and stuff. But I didn't really realize that this was a landscape on which culture and human intention could play until much later, maybe until college. And then you know, increasingly over those years, I realized that this was not necessarily the the way the world was, but that the way that we experience our inner world responds to who we think we are, where we think we are, what culture we find ourselves in, what condition of the body we find ourselves in. And so, so I've always been kind of fascinated by that. And I guess it's been really, there was a time in the early aughts when I was simultaneously doing two different projects. Why this was the case is a longer story, but I was simultaneously spending time in an evangelical church where people were learning to talk to God. And what I saw is that people were literally learning to pay attention to their inner thoughts, to pick out some of those thoughts. To and enable those thoughts to kind of become more salient, more important, more impressive to them. And they were changing their experience of their mind. So I could see that, or I remember beginning to understand that that was going on. And I was spending time on the streets in Chicago in a three block area, which has the densest per capita population of persons who hear voices with psychosis the entire state of Illinois. And it seemed that those, 
you know, those, those are two conversations going on about sort of the same topic. You know, obviously the Christians are not psychotic, but they were learning to pay attention to their mind and the way they paid attention changed their experience of their minds. And meanwhile, there were people on the streets who were really struggling with mental, mental worlds. And, you know, so I started paying attention to people who said that you people with psychosis, if they could not fear their experience, but engage with their experience, maybe that would change what they experienced. And it was around that time that I took the first of my trips to Chennai to spend time with folks in a schizophrenia research institute. And I began talking to people in Chennai who heard voices and were psychotic. And their experience of their voices, I mean, in some sense, it's very similar to people with schizophrenia in this country. And in some ways, it was pretty different. There were more people in their, in their inner worlds. Those people were more interactive. There was less violence. I mean, it's not, I don't want to be romantic. You know, it's not as if, you know, having schizophrenia in South India is a walk in the park. But their voices were kinder. And their voices were more caring and more people, you know, as a percentage of the people that I talked to, talk to, more people kind of liked those voices, experienced them as persons. And the Americans I knew did not. And so that really sort of began to force into my awareness this kind of sense that our inner world is kind of responsive to training to some extent, the training of culture, the training of the choices that we make. Yeah. I, th- I mean, what one of the most interesting facets of the article is that you you note, you know, it, it may not be perfect somewhere like Chennai, but that there is a there's actually something probably like a continuum of inner voices that we hear. And, you know, just like there's a spectrum of being sad and it's just the degree to mm-hmm. which this thing is present with you and and as you say how you deal with it and it's yeah it was it was it was very heartening to read just given how again in this country this is mostly an in this country thing but to certainly set the larger western world the idea is that you have to blunt the voice you have to stop it that this is bad that this is a moral judgment and there's a stigma as opposed to 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 engaging with it and that was, I think, I don't know, I found it uh, very, very hopeful, you know, and, and again, thinking about the field of psychology in a broader, more, because psychology is a relatively new field, ultimately, but that, the, you know, we could think better about these things and, and in a more productive way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought that when I, I wrote a book about, psychi- about psychiatry about 20 years ago, and when I was spending time in that world, it, it seemed pretty clear that there's an invitation from this, you know, this biomedical perspective in psychiatry, which, which has been so helpful in so many ways. But there's this invitation to think of people who hear voices as being another kind of animal, as if there's a ravine between them and us. And I don't think that the kind of experience my evangelicals had is psychotic. But I do think that this inner voice experience is is on a kind of a continuum and that something like psychosis or the illness is almost like a 
almost like um, a mood or a, it's not a mood, but it's a sort of a, something that happens in the body that changes the experience of those inner voices. But the fact that you can interact with your inner voices remains. So the fact that we're able to pay attention to our, to our inner voices, to heighten some of them, to depress some of them, to, cut, to encourage uh, some of those voices, that I think is it's a really helpful attitude to bring towards the difficult voices people hear in psychiatric conditions. It's not perfect, you know, so... It's not as if, you know, you can send somebody to a hearing voices group and, you know, which is this new approach, this more social approach to the to hearing distressing voices. And it's not as if you can send anyone who meets criteria for schizophrenia to one of those groups and, and hey, presto, they're cured. But at least for some people, the voices become kinder. They become more engaged. It's like, It's as if you know, for some people, you can, you, if you put the voice into a social relationship with you, it beca- begins to behave like a more reasonable person. And that's, you know, you, you, you invite the voice hearing experience into a personal relationship with you. And for some people that see that those voices become more like friends or mentors. Yes. Or as you say, just kinder, which I think for people who have had problems with psychosis in the past, that's just, that's a huge step in the right direction. It's huge. And, you know, thinking of, this is sort of your field of interest is, you know, one of your fields of interest, these inner voices. And I think I I wanted to talk a bit about your previous article, because I think it's an interesting bridge. It's kind of evidentiary of that continuum where we're talking about athletes in the way as you put it as mm-hmm. the way pure focused attention stretches time and makes what happens in the mind feel real to the senses and two questions about this which i feel like this could be multiple interviews but could you unpack what you mean by the phrase pure focused attention so one of the things that i've found in my work is that if people who become absorbed are more likely to have intense spiritual experiences. They're more likely to have voices and and visions. They're more and 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 they're more likely to kind of enter a daydream-like state and feel as if what they have to imagine becomes more real to them. So people who become more absorbed are able to become more absorbed in their inner worlds are more likely to experience God as vividly present. They're more likely to to feel that there's a person standing in the room. Uh, They're more likely to feel a sense of interaction with God. And that's true not only in, in secular settings, but if you give people a story to get caught up in, and there was a, I went through a period of my life where I was trying to explore this with undergraduates, and I had my undergraduates here at Stanford engage with the story of Leland Stanford Jr. So that's the you know, young boy in whose honor the university was founded. And so we we kind of created a series of a, a narratives 
about Young Leland. And people who were able to become kind of absorbed in their inner worlds sometimes experienced Leland as if he were there in the room. I mean, they weren't confused about whether Leland was present. They were able to have the sense that this being they sort of conjured out of their imagination was somehow intimately involved with their with their lives. So it, I, I think what, what I see, I know, and I'm not the only, you know, I, I look more at absorption than other, than other people. Other people will look at the way in which this kind of, you know, inward turning of mindfulness will change what people what people experience. We still there's still so much to learn about this, but they probably the capacity to meditate and to really enter into a state of meditation helps you to experience the the world of your inner mind is somehow more present and more alive to you. And that's quite interesting. People get more caught up in novels, they get more, they trust their inner worlds more, they're able to use their inner worlds for solace. It can feel as if trusting your inner world is somehow kind of dangerous, like it's not real. But it also means that you can manage your emotional experience more. I mean, you can you can have this comforting inner presence of um, of a being who cares for you. Exactly. Yeah. And that what you're saying about the the feeling that it's not real, that you're somehow indulging in fantasy as opposed to dealing with the real world. And it's like, well, how do people deal with the real world? That there's, you know, popular ways, which are not healthy ways, are to, you know, drink, start a zone out on your phone, find ways to distract yourself really from what's going on. Mm-hmm. And when you are pursuing this inner life, it can be a far more positive experience. And it's not, it's not hurting you in any way. And it's not hurting anyone around you. Mm-hmm. Sort of related to this, this ability to sort of dive deeply into this inner world, how did you determine that elite athletes would be an ideal sample group for this research, as opposed to the evangelicals or people who have experienced psychosis? You know, it was kind of by accident. So I teach here at Stanford. I think that in 2016, in the 2016 Olympics, I think that if Stanford had been a country, we would have come something like eighth in the medal count, maybe even in the gold medal count. So there are these amazing athletes. And I was talking about this stuff in class and somebody I I was somehow in a conversation with an elite runner and I said, almost as an aside, so do you ever hear your coach's voice? And he said, oh yeah, sure. And so I, you know, we had a conversation and the phenomenon sounded resonant of what I had seen among the evangelical world, Um, different because the level of concentration is in some sense ratcheted up. I mean, so if you are an, an elite, I'm, I am not an athlete. I, I'm plenty active, but the, the, the skill level of these elite athletes is, is so far beyond my ability to uh, imagine with my, with my body. But what I understand that they do is to be entirely focused in the moment of competition 
and then they perform, they they go. And so I was talking with it, this runner, and I realized that he did kind of you know go into this little bubble on the starting blocks, and that as he ran, in a sense, his coach ran with him, and it was you know he didn't really think that his coach was running with him, but he, particularly when he was doing something hard and technically precise, like going around a curve, he would hear his coach, and it wasn't always clear. And it, it was like he couldn't tell the difference between hearing his coach shout and hearing his coach shout in his mind. And I thought that was fascinating. And then I started to explore among the students here. And then I began to explore more, more broadly. I mean, I've always loved figure skating and gymnastics. And I've always been fascinated by them as sports because they, they, these are people who do truly impossible. I mean, not, not truly. They're doing them. They're not impossible, but they're so difficult. And physically. Physically yes. extraordinary. And just the amount of the toll it takes on somebody's body is incredible. Well, and, and just the act itself, like these figure skaters, they're on they're on knives. They're wearing knives yes. strapped to their feet. They're <laughs> tiny little blades, like less than a quarter, you know, a, a, a tiny, tiny little the slender blades. And they kind of kick up into the air, spin around three and now four times, and they land on the blade without falling over, and they move forward. Like, yeah. how do you do that? <laughs> and so I was like, you know, and how do you do that when all these people are watching you? I mean, I, and I sort of realized I mean, I've always been fascinated by watching these, like the national competitions, because you see this huge building with 18,000 people and like millions of people on TV and these 17 year olds, they just go out with all of these people watching them and they can do what they are about to do. But can they do it when all of those people are watching them to see if they will fall? I just think that's extraordinary. And so, and I realize that they're, they're, they're doing something with their minds. They're learning to manage those skittering inner thoughts that torment so many of us and they somehow get them out of the way. So this, this touches on something later in the piece that you discussed later in the piece, but you describe this one athlete whose mother uh, tore apart letters from her boyfriend to make her her daughter angry so that she would perform and focus better. And, you know, there's there's this question about cruelty and punishment in athletics. And is it necessary for athletes to be made to feel terrible in order to do well? I mean, you you know, you talk about Hannah Boyd and said, you know, she sort of internalized the cruel voice of her coach to to sort of kick her into fight or flight mode. But but she remained tormented by the voice even after her career ended. And I wonder, is there any consensus view or do you have anything to sort of say about it yourself about whether this meanness, this cruelty is actually the effective motivational strategy many people seem to think it is? That is such a good question. And that's really the debate that swirled around in the aftermath of Larry Nasser, this the predatory doctor who sort of used the culture of fear 
as some people describe it, in gymnastics in order to kind of groom young women and then take advantage of them. So, you know, it's clearly not necessary for people to be afraid in order to succeed athletically. So one of the, certainly true that that in figure skating, there have been, particularly in earlier generations, there are these coaches who, like Frank Carroll is somebody who people will point to, who exemplify dignity, restraint, kindness. I think the, the puzzle though, is, you know, for any particular person, what, what, you know, what makes you perform? And of course, we're all, we all, even those of us who are not elite athletes, we all sort of struggle to try to find what will make us perform more effectively, what will get us to kind of sit down and do the job if we're trying to write something or, you know, get up and clean the house. I mean, what, what, what are the motivations that, that help people to perform? Athletes are interesting because the demands of their performance are so remarkable that you can see the choices that they make pretty clearly. So many people will say that, no, you don't need an angry coach. You don't need a demeaning coach. Uh, so the big debate in gymnastics now is, is you know, people will say, and this is, this is a broad generalization, but people will say in gymnastics, well, that's the culture of gymnastics, that, you know, the, the coach is kind of haranguing the, the gymnasts. They're mean, at the, mean to the gymnasts. Some people will claim that those are cultural styles of coaching. So in the figure skating blogs, people will make these claims about Russian coaches, that Russian coaches kind of motivate by, by generating what they will try to see as a fight response. And that really works for, for people. And then, you know, that elite sports is such an interesting enterprise because it is so gloriously beautiful. And the body is so remarkably elegant for people who succeed at the highest level. I mean, it's just such an achievement. But you also know that for every person who makes it, all of these other people have peeled off because they have and they haven't been, they haven't had what it takes for whatever reasons, you know, the money or the parental care or the temperamental style. There are all these people who are kind of littered by the wayside. And particularly when the coaching style is, is, is difficult, full of anger, then that's a complicated challenge to sort out. Like the morals are, are complicated. How to think about that. Right. With this, with this sort of area of research or when you were looking into this, I'm curious to what extent authority has to do with the permanence of the coach's voice or sort of the how it can so deeply embed because i mean obviously these experiments were banned but when thinking about it in some ways i am reminded of stanley milgram experiments with you know mm -hmm. that there was a figure of authority giving directions to be cruel that uh you know sort of most ordinary people followed 
And I mean, it's obviously this is not the same thing as like administering deadly electric shocks or thinking that you're administering deadly electric shocks to somebody. But the 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 control or how deep the control goes seems there might be a connection there. Yeah, I mean, to, if you are in effect giving, you know, so one of the, what I looked at was the the use of the coach's voice in effect to drown out the athlete's anxiety and also to drown out the athlete's need to think. So the athlete is able to perform because the, co- the, the athlete follows the coach's voice in the athlete's mind. And sometimes it pops out into the world where the, you know, the, the athlete follows the coach's voice in order to perform in terrifying situations. So... That is, by its nature, you know, the person who does that is ceding authority over their mind to another person, even if they're doing it a choice, and even if they're doing it, you know, even if it's an, sort of an imagined authority, and you take that voice out onto the ice in order to jump successfully in these extraordinarily difficult moves where, you know, there's a little hair's breadth will mean the difference between success and you know, falling on the ice. So there's the, there are the choices that the athletes make, the athlete makes. What are they carrying out for them? A good coach is probably one who is emotionally invested in the athlete, but maybe is actively in, involved in wanting the, the athlete to succeed. For what people does that voice sort of turn bad? I was struck by a couple of things in talking to people. One, I was struck by the fact that many, many people talked about failure. That, you know, from my perspective, these were extraordinarily successful athletes. But many athletes talked to me about the competition that didn't go well, the fact that they dropped off before they got the Olympic gold medal. I mean, that that kind of thing. And it, and it's it's so there was this sharp awareness of failure of what had not worked well. The other thing that I was struck by is that when people talked about the voice they heard in performance, they often heard very specific instructions like slam the door or, you know, shoulders up or hip there, you know, and they had very specific tags. And when they talked about what stayed with them after they had stopped competing, they often generalized that voice to character traits. You're lazy. You're not working hard. You're not good enough. So that, it wasn't clear to me that the coach had done that. It was seemed to me that was an act of human psychology that people generalize from their own experience of failure. The other thing I was really struck by was that the people who talked most to me about, you know, I talked to 18 people. It's not as if I, you know, there are many, many ways of being an elite athlete, but I was struck by the fact that the people who talked to me about the voice going bad and then generalizing tended to be women. I don't know whether that's because it is a part of this, many of the sports that I was, you know, spent more time thinking about that body weight really matters. And so, you know, so in figure skating, it makes a difference to how 
quickly you spin, how your body is shaped and what weight you carry on your frame. And so some coaches, so famously, there's this Russian coach who, who weighs her skaters multiple times a day to make sure they don't eat too much. So that could really stick with you. So there's a real thing that women's bodies change as they are learning to perform and more slender bodies may be more successful. So women have this particular pressure on their relationship with food. Maybe it's because women are more socialized to be articulate about their self-criticism. Maybe it's that women are more self-critical. I mean, if you believe the, the numbers, you know, women are twice as likely to be depressed as men. You know, so I, I don't quite know how to make sense of that. I, I do know that a number of the men that I spoke to, I mean, even one or a wrestler who sounded like his coach was pretty aggressive and, you know, and his coach would give him these, you know, bark these commands at him. And he stopped competing and it stopped. He didn't really think of the voice again. And so I think that that's, you know, why that happens. It's not quite clear whether that's personality, whether it's gender, whether that's, you know, something else about the coach. I am struck that for some athletes, the, the voice you use to succeed gets wrapped up with the voice that you use to condemn yourself. And I remember this one athlete, kind of a track star, who was just so, came into my office so upset about her, what her coach was, was doing. And, you know, and she talked so articulately about how the coach and the institution had control over her body. And she was made to run when she was who she was injured, and and that, and she was quite agitated about that. And at some point, I said, I thought that sometimes athletes performed when they were injured because they wanted to win despite being injured. And she was just like, Oh, no, of course. And and I could see that for her that there were kind of two signs of this that this 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 kind of more commanding external presence was something that she had was really using to succeed and but was costly you know this is this is the debate for gymnastics going forward this sense that uh, coaches are more as i understand it within you know many gymnastics coaches have had a more a commanding authoritarian style it's been encouraged sort of by the culture of the field and now there's this you know very much discussed shift to a kinder gentler way of training people will that work will that work in a culture that was built on a more uh, authoritarian coaching style we'll see how that unfolds I mean, would you characterize sort of American sports culture or, or, you know, American gymnastics sports culture as kind of having that authoritarian quality? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly what people will claim. And it's certainly the, the case that many people, so the most important gymnastics coaches in the last 
20 years were uh, Bella and Marta Caroli. And they are certainly famous for yelling at athletes or being authoritarian figures. And so I think the discussion has been, you know, how to have a different coaching style. And again, there should be no reason why one can't, why there can't be coaching sort of through, through love. I mean, certainly I have spoken to coaches who uh, see themselves as coaching that way. It's a, it's a big shift in the way people think about managing their bodies, managing their aspirations, their, their goals. And, you know, what, what, what makes ordinary folks more successful? Is it pushing yourself into a corner and demanding, you know, almost, you know, demanding that you act to get out of it? Or is it waking up and doing what you love? I mean, we'd all prefer to do this, the latter. Sometimes it's hard. These are hard questions. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the evangelical Christians that you write about, you know, hearing the voice of God are necessarily hearing the voice of God say something negative to them. And yet it has this immense power of their lives. It has this, you know, beneficial sort of guiding power to them. So it would be interesting to hear, you know, like the commonalities between an athlete hearing their coach's voice versus like the distinctions between hearing a coach's voice versus say hearing the voice of God. And, you know, obviously some of that has to do with spirituality, but there's a connection there, certainly. Yep. And it's a complicated connection, right? Complicated and deep. So for example, Many of the evangelical Christians that I came to know really valued and understood themselves to be moving, you know, trying to create for themselves an almost teddy bear-like God. I don't mean that to be demeaning. I mean, I mean that to, to, to suggest that the, the churches I spent time in, I mean, they're trying to get people in the door. They're afraid of people, that, that people are, secular people are missing out of this kind of opportunity of this great loving God. And I, you can tell, you walk into a church like that and you look at people's faces and you can see that there are many people in those churches who have this intense, visceral awareness of being loved by a God who really cared about them in particular. So, you know, I read this book a couple of, number of years ago about, about evangelical Christians, and I, and I made some comment that, you know, the only mention of hell that I'd heard was in, a, in an aside Somebody was talking about, somebody was giving a sermon and they said, when they rolled the credits of the film on Jesus's life, are you going to be in the film or, or, or are you going to be on the cutting room floor? And I thought he was talking about hell. And so I said this in the book and somebody wrote to me afterwards and said, didn't I understand that in these churches, hell is always present. They just don't talk about it. And there's some research that suggests that, in fact, if you're going to motivate somebody to good behavior, hell is a more effective motivator, that the fear of being condemned and judged is a more powerful motivation than the desire to be loved. And I, I do think that it is 
This is a blunt claim, but I'll say it anyway. I think that it's harder to believe in a God who loves you completely than to believe in a God who will condemn you. So if you think about it, like it's easier to kind of believe in superstitions than to really take seriously that there's this utterly holy loving being who has nothing but your best interests in mind. You know, when I was interviewing Christians, I, there, there would often come a moment when I, you know, was, I was I'd be sitting with somebody and they'd start to cry. And what they would be remembering was this, they sometimes even called it a, a precious moment. They, what they would be remembering was some moment where they, the penny had dropped and they really got that God loved them. I mean, this is a message they had heard in every Bible study, in every church, in every conversation. But it's hard to really feel that love. It's a little easier for us to kind of feel these self-imposed lashes. So, again, I think these are these are complicated questions. Absolutely. You were sort of talking about the extent to which this could be, or, or understanding this better could be helpful to non-elite athletes and just the sort of everyday people who want to, you know, be a little bit more productive, perhaps do what they love a little bit easier, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the cost and the benefit of sort of giving over your autonomy and agency to, to, to someone else or to your idea of someone else, the voice of their voice in your head. And your piece ends with this really sad story of a former track star who felt like she gave up control of her own body to her coaches, and then she just never got it back. And in the many interviews you conducted, how common was this sense of regret and loss? Or did, did most of the athletes seem to feel that the trade had been worth it? That's a really good question. You know, I think my experience is that most of them did think that the trade was worth it. So not everybody was left with this uh, corrosive inner voice. Not everybody was left with the corrosive inner voice and the corrosive inner voice only appears at some times in some ways for some people. So I, I want to believe that for most of the athletes I, I spoke with, the joy and the performance and the extraordinary skill with which they were able to use their body was absolutely worth it. But I think that the existential question is one that we all face, which is, you know, how do you remember, you know, to use a, a, a blunt phrase, how do, you, how do you eat the chicken and spit out the bones? How do you take what you, what you need from a friend or a mentor and not take the stuff that stings. Humans are very good at, at keeping the stuff that's, that stings. I do think that what I see in the technique is the ability to focus your attention on certain phrases, certain narratives for certain images, and to allow those narratives to have a kind of life of their own in your own inner world. And for people who work at that, 
maybe some people are better at this than others. It can be quite, quite helpful. And finally, this might be an anticlimactic question, but, you know, reading this piece, I was reminded of John McEnroe, who sort of stands out Mm -hmm. as this athlete who obviously he'd get really mad. He'd flip out. But the thing about that is that you're not supposed to do that. So he could somehow let the tiger out of the cage, put it back, and then continue to perform. So do you do you have any plans to sort of continue speaking to athletes about this or at least try to try to get the bad boy of tennis from circa 1983 to sort of discuss that that process? We'll we'll see. I, I, I certainly plan to talk to more athletes. I find that the capacity, many really good athletes have this capacity to experience the emotions and let it pass. And that is kind of stunning to me. Um, David Foster Wallace wrote an essay about, about tennis players in which he claimed that that was, that was the special feature of really good tennis players that they could not think. And I don't think, I'm not sure that's quite right, but there is something to the capacity of some folks who perform well under the scrutiny of millions of eyes in which they just are less attentive to their inner worlds. And that is, so they're, 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 they can do things with their minds that many of us can't. And I think that's fascinating. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This was great. Oh, great. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times called Harper's America's Most Interesting Magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org save to subscribe for only $16.97.